Hello, and welcome back to the Careers Mayor podcast with me, Jacob, and my colleague, Jordan. If you're feeling the blues from this long run up to Christmas through the dark days of Advent, we've got just the thing to cure what ails you, um, because we've got a lovely old doctor in the house. There is a doctor in the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please, is there a doctor in the podcast This man's having a heart attack? Please, please, is anybody on this podcast a doctor, a junior doctor called George Cool? <laughs> He's actually called George Cook, Jordan. Don't be silly. But he is cool. But he is cool. He is a very cool dude, and he has some pretty swish jackets. A lot of nice jackets. We know George from uh, university. Surprise, surprise. He was in the Comedy Society uh, for a stint while we were there. But he was um, a bit more advanced in his education than we were. He's very funny. He's a lovely man. Um, this was actually the first time we'd spoken to him properly for a long time. So it was nice for us to get up to speed with him as well. And I think you're really going to enjoy listening to him talking about being a doctor and talking about a lot of other things. Now, please, somebody get us a doctor! So, George, um, the thing that we ask everyone when when they come on here is, what was your first ever job? So I'm going to take the definition of job quite lightly here, and I'm going to go back get off. to... Get off. Get off. <laughs> go on. Go on, I mean it. Go on. I'm going to destroy <laughs> the entire format of this podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to go back to my childhood because I grew up on a, uh, on a, a farm, a working dairy farm. So I was kind of roped into doing a lot of farm work from quite an early age. And I didn't get any pocket money, but... But I was expected to help out on the farm a lot. So I did lots of kind of odd jobs, ranging from quite sort of idyllic, sweet jobs like feeding the baby calves. Mm. Um, and did the baby like calves? <laughs> Always hungry for more calves. <laughs> um, <laughs> so some very sweet jobs and then some other quite harrowing jobs as well so uh, i got taught how to drive the tractors about 12 13 years old um and one of the jobs was to scrape up a load of the, the cow poo right and you'd scrape it up into um this big sort of cesspit which i got taught was called the lagoon <laughs> <laughs> and i feel like most people when they think of a lagoon they think of like tropical island you know peaceful mm. paradise whereas you know the, the lagoon at home was you know a, a pit of um you know liquid <laughs> liquid cow poo. and i was told that the lagoon is very dangerous um because there's a <laughs> there's a there's a crust there's a crust of hardened poo on the top but if you were to walk onto it you'd fall through the crust into <laughs> liquid liquid dunk and you would drown in in the cow poo i was always terrified of um in films if a character like fell through the ice and they'd be trapped under the ice but you know in the uh farm equivalent you're you know trapped under like the solid poo in more poo <laughs> Does that happen um, on does that happen on every farm? Because I mean I've been on farms before. I've not seen a lagoon of <laughs> cow dung. It's kind of kept round the round the back of the sheds. Like 
it's not it's not like for everything on the shop front you know um yeah. but i see the dog like running over the cross because obviously the dog was light enough to, you know not fall through um but i was always so terrified and when you're <laughs> driving on the track then you're kind of pushing the poo into lagoon i'm sorry this this is very kind of like poo based um <laughs> once the kind of the scraping mechanism kind of got stuck and the kind of front of the tractor I was on started lifting up. And I was like, oh God, this is it. This is how I die. This is how I die. 13 years old, drowning in poo, in cow poo. Um, That'd be a great place to hide a body, wouldn't it? If you killed yeah, someone. Yeah, yeah. So who's going to go looking in there? Yeah. And it would it would probably, you know, break down and who'd be, who'd know and the wiser. Yeah, you say probably, George. Your your eyes lit up there, <laughs> thinking yeah, about your first well, kill. Yeah. <laughs> well, my first job was actually, you know, working for the mafia, but pretending to be a 13-year-old boy working on a farm. If you If you had to kill anyone and hide them in the lagoon, who would it be? It has to be someone you know. <laughs> I I don't know if anyone springs to mind that I would want to kill. Um, that was the correct answer, George. Well done. Yeah, podcasters that ask me really you know, <laughs> intrusive questions like that, they get a little bit too uh, close to the. Um... <laughs> I'm drunk. <laughs> Um, yeah as long as they tend to make yeah. yeah um i was gonna ask um you probably know this as a someone who grew up on a dairy farm mm. uh do cows drink milk well the calves did the baby cows did because i'd i'd feed them the, well that's what it's for milk. isn't it yeah <laughs> well, I suppose it's so. a general <laughs> idea mate yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> We forget that, that was though, don't our, we? that was our target market. Yeah, we forget <laughs> that the, that milk's target market is calves. Yeah, because I um, feel like milk's target market is me, <laughs> but actually it's Just calves. You. Yeah, yeah. The that's consumer. how I. That's what I say out loud to myself every time I drink milk. <laughs> I say this: the this target market of this is for is me. <laughs> glug glug glug. Yeah. Do you like milk? I like milk and cereal, but I didn't, I wasn't like a, I didn't drink straight milk. Mm, from the other. No. <laughs> Have you ever done that though, working on a dairy farm? I, I, well, I haven't squeezed Nudder and directed it into my open mouth. That's what I'm asking. But we did drink milk from the farm. It's unpasteurized, so it was really thick and creamy. Mm, like raw Ooh, milk. Delicious, yeah. You wouldn't buy unpasteurized milk. That's probably not legal, is it? I'm not sure, to be honest, but the milk that, that we drank from the farm, it had been thoroughly filtered, but it hadn't been pasteurized. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that all right? That's all right, then, to drink? Because I thought it had to be pasteurized or else bad things would happen <laughs> well, well i guess that makes it easier to like transport and sell like it makes it probably it probably and... makes it last a lot longer yeah. yeah yeah it's a bit embarrassing but i don't really kind of know what that entails i basically so basically you know i grew up on a farm and did these odd jobs but kind of quickly realized that i didn't really want to be a farmer um to be honest uh and kind of enjoyed quite a lot of academic things and was interested in lots of different things, but 
yeah, didn't didn't really want to follow my father's and my grandfather's and you know everyone else in my family. Didn't really oh really? How far did it go back? As far as you can go. Really? Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, mum's side and dad's side of the family, all farmers. Oh, I love that. It's a, it's a bit when you do like a one of these genealogy tests. Mine's quite dull because, like, for the past three hundred years, all my family's from the same area. They're all farmers. Basically, means I think I'm inbred. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> was there any disappointment from your family that you didn't want to be a farmer? If there was, it wasn't felt. And I think they were quite happy for me to do something academic. I don't think they really kind of saw it as a disappointment. And I kind of feel so grateful for that because if I was a generation before, there'd be no question that I would have to absolutely have to take over the farm. So I asked my dad, I've asked my dad several times, you know, what would you have done if you weren't a farmer? And he just can't comprehend the question. He just can't think of any other job because it's all he was ever going to be. And, you know, when he was a child, there was no question that he could or or would do anything other than that. Hmm. So um, you did lots of jobs on the farm. You tended to the lagoon. Apart from mm. your lagoon duties, what were your other duties on the farm? Well, I kind of, I was promoted to um, head of chickens um, at one point when I think when I was about 14. So I looked after all the all the hens. So I'd, I'd feed them, I'd collect the eggs and I'd muck them out. And I'd sell the eggs to the local pub, which was great because basically that was kind of my way. Didn't get pocket money, so that was kind of my way of getting um, a little bit of cash. And it was great. I love my little chickies, my little hens. They're in. They were sort of kept in this orchard, so they were in. They're indulged with with quite a lot of different fruits. So they'd peck at the the apples that would fall from the tree. You know, a few plums and sloes and damsons, and they love that. Yeah. And so I'd feed them at the beginning of the day, and then I'd have to I'd have to shut them in at night because of the foxes. And unfortunately, um, a few times the fox did actually manage to get in. And so once or twice, the whole kind of flock of chickens would be dead by the morning, basically. They were killed all of them? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, leave, leave none alive. I mean, I don't <laughs> really know like, what them, the... Though, did it? Surely. No, no, the fox would take one or two, but kill all of them. Why? That's so mean. Why? I know, I know. Just kill the ones you go to eat if you have to break in. I mean, really Fo- fair. If you're listening... <laughs> If if they're if they're thinking about you know sustainable you know ways of eating, if you, if they just took one or two and then you know come back for more later on when they're still you know fresh fresh kills, I don't know what that fox was thinking. But anyway, there well, are a couple the most, of times the most uh, you know the the best way of conserving the lost nutrients in the chicken would be to eat the fox because the fox has absorbed. The nutritional benefit of the chickens. Presumably. Who's eating the fox here? Well, you. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's that? Well, someone. That should be what happened. Every time a fox eats <laughs> some chickens, you hunt the fox down and you eat it, and then nothing's been wasted. Mm. That sounds mm. like one of those speeches that, like, a soldier would give in the trenches. Like, for every five <laughs> of us they kill, we'll kill fifty of them. <laughs> <laughs> and because they ate my friends, I'll eat them. <laughs> yeah, tally ho, boys. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
at what age did you stop doing odd bits here and there on the farm and then move on to other things? So the I guess the age where I did the most of the farm work would probably be from 12 to about 15. And then as it became clearer and clearer that I didn't want to do farming, I would kind of like angsty teen, I'd be like, man, I don't want to do this and kind of put up more of a kind of fuss about having to do uh, kind of farmly duties. And then when I was kind of about the age of 15, I was like, maybe I want to be an architect because I played The Sims a lot and love kind of mm. like building houses on there. Mm. So I was like, yeah, this, this job seems the one. And so it's kind of at that age where my interests in other things developed that I kind of petered out doing farm work. And I think my dad kind of understood at that point that, yeah, that's, that's something that I didn't want to carry on. That's interesting because it's normally about the age of 15, isn't it? When I think especially boys tend to really latch on to something and really, uh, you know, it's part of becoming your own person, I think, isn't it? Mm, yeah. I mean, for a long time, I remember thinking as a child, I really didn't want to grow up. I wanted to be young forever, not have any responsibilities. I didn't want to get a job. I didn't want to drive. That freaked me out as a child. It kind of seems so bizarre to me that people are driving around like 60 miles an hour and staying on the road. Um, yeah. I think it's that fear of driving. It was, is bizarre. Was, yeah. Uh, that made me think, oh, I don't want to be an adult. I don't want to get a job. And so when I was a child um, and people were asking me, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'd kind of palm them off with, you know, a half-assed answer. I'd usually say the job that was most in front of me, like postman or milkman, because I didn't really give it much thought as a child. But then when you're kind of 15, 16, you're, you're, you're kind of forced to think about your future, really. Mm. Well, yeah, you've got your GCSEs then, haven't you? And you yeah. know, then, then school's telling you, right, you've got to pick these subjects for what you want to do in the future because then you've got to do your A-levels after this. So that's when it starts. You get a bit more structure in your life of like, right, yeah. enough messing about, time to actually think about what you want to do. Yeah, and as, as a 15-year-old with no life experience, well, I didn't have any life experience as a 15-year-old, you're told to make decisions that will affect the rest of your life. Yeah, which is always tricky. So I, I kind of, um, I was like, maybe I want to be an architect. So I got some work experience with an architect firm and seemed quite flashy, but I spent one day with a guy who really didn't like his job and he was like, don't be an architect. It's really dull. It's really boring. He basically hated his job and kind of just unloaded his kind of, um, <laughs> yeah. And they thought, let's put George with that guy yeah. when he does his work yeah. experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the guy that Strange hates choice. his job yeah because yeah. we don't want any more architects <laughs> let's crush his spirit yeah um i'm not sure why that happened anyway so i kind of realized maybe i've only said i want to be an architect because i i like video games that kind of involve that and also i quite like design but i think that was more of a hobby so i kind of thought what do i want to do more as a a long-term career rather than just a bit of a hobby and I quite like sciences so I kind of did the the classic science a levels and then the school that I went to loved to push people towards medicine and the kind of those kind of careers and degrees that they can say they've got x many people doing this that and the other so I was like okay well 
I'll get some work experience because that's what you, I'll do some volunteering work. That's what you need to do if um, you're going to apply to medicine. So I, that led on to a couple of, well, not paid, but kind of jobs that I do regularly. So I volunteered in a nursing home and what else did I do? Oh yeah, I worked as a um, a mealtime feeder. <laughs> That's probably not the right word for it. Um, I'd go into hospitals at lunch times, and I'd say, "Does anyone need feeding?" Uh, <laughs> and then a security guard would come up to you and say, "Excuse me, sir, can you?" Uh, yes, can you I've got leave? a hot pie. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants some hot pie? Um, and you'd you have your tabard. <laughs> I, I your genuinely hair, had a tabard. <laughs> I didn't have a hairnet, but I genuinely had a, a tabard that said like mealtime feeder or something like that. <laughs> I had Mr. Feeder. <laughs> Mr. Feeder. Rub a dub dub, <laughs> let's eat some grub. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I'd, um, it was a, it was a genuine like volunteering organization. And so you, you'd ask the, the mates on the ward, does anyone need feeding? Um, and it was, it was normally patients with very bad dementia who normally would just have a meal plonked in front of them. And because their dementia was so bad, they wouldn't recognize it as something they have to eat, or maybe they couldn't even pick up utensils to feed themselves. So you would be there to either encourage them to eat or to kind of physically help them do it because so often you have little ladies that go into hospital for whatever reason and don't end up getting the nutrition they need and they become very very frail and then significantly impacts their mortality so it's really really important yeah, for especially yeah. little old nanas um to get as many calories as they can so often they'll be given you know if they're going to eat a chocolate bar they'll just be given loads of chocolate bars because even though it's not the most healthy food, it's calories and they need mm. calories. Yeah. I'd often uh, sit next to a little old lady who's probably got quite a bit of dementia and I'd, you know, spoon um, food into their mouths. And most of the time they would, you know, just open the mouths and chomp, chomp, chomp. Because you had to keep on trying to give them as much food as possible because often they'll they'll take one or two mouthfuls and they'll kind of lose interest or, or not want it anymore. So you've got to kind of find a balance of obviously not force feeding them, but encouraging them to have as much as possible. So often I'd go, come on, dear, just a little bit more. And they'd say no, but they'd open their mouths. So I was like, well, I, that's kind of a, for, a form of an implied consent. Um, so I, you know, and they, they keep on opening their mouths. And so I'd go, okay, a bit more, a bit more. Yeah. I'm not sure if you've, any of you Harry Potter fans? Uh, I was when I was uh, young. So I'm, I, you, I'm fairly conversant. Did you see the films? Yeah. There's, I think it's the, the sixth film where Harry and Dumbledore go into a, that's the one. They go into a, a cave, and Dumbledore oh, has, yeah. to, and Harry has, has to, keep to drink. Dumbledore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Dumbledore's like, no, no, <laughs> and like he's like spouting gibberish, and you're like, yeah. come on, come on, Dumbledore, come on, <laughs> eat a bit of like um, cottage pie. <laughs> <laughs> and I think in the it film, didn't help he like, called them all Dumbledore, though. I bet <laughs> <laughs> that did, that really confused them. <laughs> yes, yeah. And there's a bit where he's like, no, kill me. And Harry's like, come on, come on a bit more. Um, Yeah, sometimes it did feel a bit like that. But 
actually what you're doing, you know, if they, if they're, if they're, you know, really batting it away and you've reached your limit, you kind of like go, okay, that's, you know, that's much as, you know, they're going to accept for today. Let's move I mean, on it's, it's, it's one. so much like feeding a child really, isn't it? And it really is. And that's the thing that people always say, isn't it? That the beginning and end of your life, they're quite similar in a lot of ways. Um, mm. And I think that's, and, and obviously yeah. you lose a lot of dignity, unfortunately, at that part of your life. And that's, that's yeah. part of it. I didn't quite do the choo-choo train or here comes the airplane. No, I thought that might that's good. A bit disrespectful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Not exactly the same, but similar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I mean, that's this, I mean, working at a care home and then doing that, that's like the perfect practice for having a good bedside manner as a doctor, isn't it? Yeah. And they were really useful kind of um, skills to learn to sort of navigate the potential awkwardness and also just just kind of learning to be friendly and yeah. and to to acknowledge their dignity but also to acknowledge the practicalities of what's going on as well so not sort of i can't think of a better word than pussyfooting around some of the real challenges they have you know because you might think oh it's got awkward to you know put food in adults mouth but you know you, some of the things you just have to crack on with yeah and yeah if you're if you're doing medicine sometimes you just got to kind of roll up your sleeves and go okay this is gonna this might be a bit awkward but for the sake of this person's health you've got to crack on and would you say that's where your spark for medicine came alive doing those voluntary roles yeah yeah it's it's really cheesy uh, and played out to say you want to do medicine because you like sciences you like helping people but genuinely if if someone does medicine that is really the reason why they do it because you have to and when you're when you're doing these kind of like caring roles you might not get a, you know a sense of adrenaline as you're doing it but when you walk out of the care home or the hospital or whatever you really do get a sense of like yeah actually i think i think i've done something quite good here today even if it's just something that might be quite mm, sort of menial actually you've worked in an environment you've worked as part of a team that does some quite amazing things yeah i think it's there's a sense that in a in society we know that there's a certain amount of misery that has to be gone through and miserable jobs that have to be done and so it is quite a good feeling when you feel like you're pulling your weight in that Mm. I think that if you go through life and you feel like it's only ever been other people that have been doing the difficult, unpleasant things, you know, like um, <clears throat> an obvious example is when the police have to go and tell next of kin that their relative has died or something like that. Like, that's... Yeah, it's funny you say that because I was literally just going to say I had to have quite a few conversations where I'd ring up next of kin and say their relative has passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was always obviously a difficult conversation but you do learn you learn techniques the university i went to southampton medical school sometimes gets a bit of a rep of being a bit of a gp factory but actually i think one of the things they did really well in teaching us was preparing us for a lot of those difficult conversations that you inevitably will have to deal with as, as, a, as a junior doctor and when you're doing uh, night shifts a lot of patients that die in hospital tend to die overnight, usually in the, the small hours of the morning. So if a patient's died at like four o'clock in the morning, I, I tend to, to leave it till about eight o'clock in the morning to ring next of kin because there's, there's no point in ringing them at four o'clock in the morning. It's just going to 
distress them because they've been woken up. Anyway, so it would usually be the last job I did at the end of a night shift was to call next of kin up. And you kind of have your techniques and things that you absolutely cannot say and things that you should say. So I'd often start off with, uh, you know, confirming who I'm talking to. And I'd, I'd say something like, I, I was called to um, go and see Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, while the nurses. And when I examined them, I found that there were no signs of life. So you kind of give that warning shot and then you give a pause. And that pause is A, to stop you waffling, because in those situations, it can be really hard to just kind of go, because, you know, you're feeling quite anxious about it. But also it kind of allows them to then say, you know, the big D word, or it allows them to ask you questions. And oftentimes they'd go, oh God, if they died. Because they usually know that, you know, their relative is very frail. And, and, and most of the time, you know, when patients die in hospital, the relatives know they're on the way out. And if they kind of say nothing, then you have to kind of lead the conversation on a bit. But some of the things that you can't say is you can't be vague about it. You can't say, oh, uh, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so is in a better place. Because it could mean that they're on the private practice ward, or it could mean, mm-hmm. you know, they're in a in another cubicle. And there's all sorts of sort of language and, and cultural um, barriers that you have to get over. You can't say, um, you can't really say they passed away or what are the other kind of like euphemisms for people that have died? Um, Moved on. Yeah. Yeah. You can't say that. That's vague. You have to say the D word. You have to say they've died. And it can be so hard to say that word because in hospital, that's the worst thing that can happen to one of your patients really is if they've died. And so it's really hard. It's a real lump in your throat. You have to push yourself off a cliff to say the word they have died. Because it's so easy to go, oh, they they pass away. You just have to, you just have to say it. Mm. And then once you've said that they've died, again, you leave a pause. You let the relative respond. And do you find that generally... The, they tend to get off the phone quite quickly after that, or do they want to keep asking you questions, or, or how does it normally play out? The, the the question they almost always ask is, what next? Because it's such a, a dramatic event. People just go, oh God, what do I, what do, I do now? It's, you don't, and you don't really think of the logistics of what happens when your relative has died, because you just think about their death. So you have to say, okay, this person's, um, I can't remember the, the title of, of, the, of the job, but this person's going to contact you about the death certificate and, and the logistics of what happens. Have you found that it's gotten easier over time having those conversations or is it, is it one of those things that just never gets easier? Uh, I think it does get easier over time for sure. It's never easy, but it gets easier. The first time having to say the D word, someone's died uh, or they're dead, is was really, really difficult. Just to kind of physically squeeze it out of my mouth was just quite challenging. But it is something that you get used to. Well, I may not get used to, but it, but it gets a bit easier. Yeah, but uh, obviously every single conversation that you have with relatives is going to be different. And so you can never 
approach it like a repetitive task is that's the same every time. Do you say died or dead? Oh, as in like they've died or they are dead? Yeah. So I say uh, when I examine them, there's no signs of life. And just to confirm to you that, you know, say the name of the patient has died. Right. Yes. Yeah, so that sounds a bit. That sounds a bit less harsh somehow. I think than so and so is dead. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The language is so crucial there, isn't it? It is because you want to be. You want to be gentle. Like you yeah. want to be mm. gentle, but you have to be clear. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah. Unambiguous. And then another another tricky conversation that you often have to have is the do not resuscitate conversation, which is can almost be hard in a way because you have to often have the conversation with the patient themselves and say, if you get really, really sick and your heart stops, we're not going to perform CPR on you and try and restart your heart. And the reason why you do that is because that patient is often so frail that the chances of bringing them back once their heart has stopped is so, so, so small, it's very, very unlikely. But also, if you were to bring them back alive after their heart has stopped and they're technically dead, their situation might be so much worse. So they, their heart might have stopped for long enough that causes them permanent brain damage. And so they might be brain dead or significantly paralyzed, or they might need so much support with their breathing, they have to go on ventilation. And so their life, if you bring them back, their life might be unbearable. And often you have to, to realize that the chances of bringing someone back by doing CPR, is very slim. If it's a, a young, healthy person, obviously the chances are better, but it's still pretty slim. You know, in TVs and, TV and movies, when someone does CPR, it almost always brings them back. Mm. Clear. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in reality, it's, um, yeah, it doesn't often happen. And like I said, the reason why we do these do not resuscitate forms is because even if we do. And also it's kind of a, it's a dignity thing as well. If you're a, a little old Nana who's 90 years old and very, very frail and the family is there, does the family and does the patient want people to be jumping up and down on their chest, crushing all their ribs? Do you want that to be the last memory or the last moment of your life? Almost all the patients are very happy to sign a do not resuscitate form. But it'd be quite harsh because I kind of think, oh God, yeah, I'd want you to do everything you can to bring me back. But obviously I'm talking as a, as a 31-year-old adult, not a, you know, 88-year-old, someone who's lived a full life. So your own perception of, of your life can make those conversations quite difficult. That, that's something I wanted to ask, actually, because I know personally the way that I have come to terms with death is reminding myself that this is just how I feel right now because mm. when I was younger and particularly when I was a teenager I was really 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 petrified of death and oh me too as I've gotten older I've realized that the reason for that is because I'm in my prime right now and I well. don't <laughs> I, I haven't even begun maybe a to couple peak. years ago <laughs> I haven't even begun to peak so sharp um, but what I always remind myself is oh well when I'm like you say 88 and I've had my full life. I'm sure mm. at that point I want to mm. get off this ride. So mm. I'll I'll be a lot more comfortable with it at that point. Is that mm. for you 
and particularly with doing this job is that something that you've had to come to terms with you know being because you're really you're surrounded by death aren't you in in the job that you do yes so bring it bring this back to to childhood working on the farm even at a young age on a farm you're surrounded by death animals are dying around you vets are coming in sometimes the vet can't do anything and animals die and because we lived on the farm we had quite a few pets as well we had dogs we had horses at one point and there were times where there was like a, a very tragic time where one of our horses was something awful happened and it was dying and and then one of the dogs a few years later died in quite a traumatic way and i guess i guess everyone with pets learns about death through pets but when you're mm. on a farm there's loads of it and so like that that probably helped with the transition a bit but like you said jordan i i will still am very very afraid of my own death and my own mortality and you have to you have to take your feelings out of it you have to take put yourself in their shoes rather than your shoes to do that you have to be very open in, in your questions and and try and get to know what their priorities are it might be that a patient wants you to do absolutely everything you can or it might be a patient's priority that they don't want blood transfusions or they don't want surgeries or they don't want this and they don't want that and you can't assume what a patient's priorities are so you just have to have a lot of these open conversations quite a lot because it's not for us to decide how how do i put this we're not going to treat all the patients exactly the same we're going to do everything we can for all of our patients but we're going to treat patients the way they in a way that is most respectful for them mm. does that make sense yeah you've yeah. got to obviously account for yeah the fact that not everyone has the same viewpoint as yourself which is interesting because yeah. that's not that goes against human nature i think is that we tend to assume that everyone else thinks the same way we do or should or you know and often in our worst moments we assume we get angry at other people because they don't have the same values or opinions or beliefs or feelings as we do if someone is of sound mind and they have capacity to make decisions you can't force them to do anything you know sometimes you're really baffled by patients choices so there might be a patient where you say to them look we have to amputate your foot because otherwise otherwise it's going to spread and it's going to kill you and they're like nope nope i don't want you to do that um they don't have a death wish they just don't want Mm. to be treated like that and and if if they're if they have capacity you can't force uh surgery you can't chop someone's foot off against their will again if they have capacity because that's assault yeah, I mean, it's again, it's human nature, I guess. It's hard to weigh a doubt against a certainty because in their mind, the choice is I might die or my foot's definitely going to be cut off. Mm, and even yeah. if the certainty is less serious than the doubt, you know, still mm. will go, or oh, I, I don't want the thing that's definitely, the bad thing that's definitely going to happen. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. But it can, it can be very frustrating sometimes because you're like, oh, I know what's going to happen to you. And you kind of think, but you have to stop yourself and think, I, I, I can't do this job and have the mindset of, I know what's best for you. you know. 
But often you do, of course. Yeah, yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's what I was going to say, really, is like if, with the age of information, I feel like so many people now, it's the classic thing of like Googling your symptoms, isn't it? Or oh, God. Think, oh, God. Thinking that you know about your condition um, mm. because you've looked it up and you've done your own research. Um, mm. Is that something that you found you have to battle against quite a lot? When people say, well, no, actually, I no, I do know this thing. I know what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, what I've noticed is that, is that it's it's there's usually a generational divide in that older people tend to prefer it when doctors tell them what to do and they kind of like that paternal way of being treated. Like the doctors told me to do this, I'm going to do this, and they kind of follow the mm. doctors mm. word by law. But and but often the younger generation they want to know the options a bit more. They want to feel like they have more autonomy. So when I was doing a, um, a GP rotation, I'd often say, okay, here's, here's our options. Here's what we could do. And I think they tend to prefer that. Uh, younger people in general tend to prefer that way of doing things. And what I do a lot on GP is send them reliable sources of information because it's re- it can be really difficult to get... Um, like I said, Jordan, you can Google something, you can Google a symptom and be like, oh my God, you know, I've Googled this rash and it, <laughs> and Google says I've got meningococcal meningitis or septicemia or something, you know, really terrifying. And so information is, is so important to help reassure people, but also empower them. So there's this really good website called uh, Patient Info that I would get articles from there and you can, you can send people a link to the articles and it'll be great for patients because it'll say kind of what the symptoms are, what's going on and treatment options. And it just empowers them because when you, when you've got something going on that you don't quite know, you're going to want to ask loads of questions and you might forget to ask those questions. And so having something that you can do your own research and you know is reliable I kind of found from the feedback that I got that patient that that younger patients really liked really likes that. Mm. I think that's where I'm a bit old school because every time I go to the doctor, I'm like, just tell me what just do what what do I do? You you know this all. Just just tell me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I'd I think I'd be like that as well. I'd yeah. I'd just be kind of like, you know the odds of, mm. you know, what option is better at treating people. And, you know, when I talk to patients, I I would say, like, this is the standard treatment. This is the most likely to be effective. And sometimes there isn't other options. But I'd say if you did do nothing, these would be the most likely outcomes. So you give them the option that they could do nothing, but also inform them that if they do nothing... (laughs) Yeah, you've got two options. Either you take these pills or your head's going to fall off. (laughs) Yes, yeah. (laughs) That is option number two. (laughs) <laughs> yeah what's behind door number two yeah or option <laughs> number three is a mystery box <laughs> what's inside the mystery box yeah um random pills, <laughs> random pills. it's like bullseye 
Pick or you could gamble your antibiotics for a uh, <laughs> washing the machine. The wall comes up and it's just a studio audience. What do you think, everyone? Should he gamble? <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've thought about it and we're going to gamble. Yeah, we're going to gamble. Gonna gamble. We're going to gamble. <laughs> oh, I'm afraid you lost the gamble, so you will lose your legs. <laughs> yeah. But you've been a great sport. Give him a round of applause, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we get that you're a Dr. George. Mm. We get that you're a Dr. George Cook. Mm. Just you might need to break it down for me for a bit as a layman. So you said originally that you worked in radiology, but then obviously mm. we've been talking about, you know, making calls to next of kin um, and it sounds like you've done a fair number of other things that wouldn't strictly fall within the scope of radiology. So how does that work? Is mm. it Was that when you were doing training, is it you did rotations around other things? Or do you do radiology as like your main thing, but you do other things as well or different shifts? Or how, how basically, how does that work? Yeah, um, good question. So you do five years of medical school, or sometimes four or six, but... J- usually five years medical school within that you will tend to do a varying degrees of experience on the wards or in different healthcare settings so even whilst you're at medical school often you'll be going to gp practices and you'll start seeing some patients there under the supervision of fully qualified doctors when you then graduate medical school in the uk you do what's called foundation years so you do foundation, you're, you're a foundation one doctor, and then you do a foundation two uh, year. Um, and in those years, you do four month blocks of different rotations. So for example, in my first year, my foundation year one as a junior doctor, I did three months working in orthopedics and then, sorry, four months in orthopedics and then four months in cardiology. And then during my F2 year, I did four months uh, working in a GP practice, four months working in A&E and four months working in general surgery. So you get quite a lot of experience in different areas of medicine and surgery. And then after you've done those two years, you can start to apply to specialist training. So halfway through my foundation two year i applied for specialist training in radiology and for that obviously you have to do some exams uh, you have to go to interview um, and then if you get uh, selected you can kind of rank where in the in the country that you want to work and so i got offered a position in radiology specialist training in manchester in radiology it's a five to six year training program if you're working full-time if you want to do clinical radiology, the standard clinical radiology, it's five years. And if you want to do interventional radiology, it's six, It's an extra year, six years. So I'm halfway through the standard five years in radiology. So technically at the moment, I'm what other doctors would refer to as an ST3. ST stands for specialist trainee and three means I'm in the third year of it. And people will call that level registrar level. And that comes under the umbrella of junior doctor, which is quite a confusing term because a junior doctor describes anyone who isn't a consultant, basically. 
So a junior doctor can be a foundation doctor. It can be a registrar. It can be someone who has had 20 years experience as a fully qualified doctor, but because they're not a consultant, they're not, you know, the very highest level that you could possibly be, they're still deemed a junior doctor. So the terminology can be quite confusing. Yeah. It's the same with barristers. If you're not a King's Counsel, then you're a junior barrister, even if you've been a barrister for 30 years. Mm. And some people choose never to be a consultant because it's a lot more responsibility and it can be a lot more stressful. So some people might just decide, okay, I'm going to, you know, stay at the kind of equivalent registrar level. And I should say as well that often people will pause their training or they'll do the F1 and F2 years, which are mandatory in the NHS, and then they'll just work as like a general war doctor and not be on a specialist training program. So they can be a lot more flexible with their shifts, but not get formal training. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's quite, it's quite a complicated system. Basically, if you're a junior doctor, you can be on a training program or, 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 or sort of not and sort of have your training paused. And can you, can you pause it indefinitely or is it something that you can just come back to when you're ready or? Um, yeah, you can. People tend to take that pause before specialist training because once you're on a specialist training program, you need to complete exams and you need to show that you're doing this, this, and this. But if you're, if you don't go into a training program, you can just be a lot more flexible. So often people will delay going into a delay applying to go into a training program to work in Australia for a couple of years, for example. Then they might come back and back to the UK and apply for a training program a bit later on. It just gives you a bit more freedom. But I'm guessing you're in a better position after you do the training to move into, well, I guess if you're going for being a consultant, the best thing to do is early on to do that. But I'm guessing that's how you become a consultant in, say, radiology. Yes, yes. So after you've done the five years in radiology, if you pass all of your exams and you've ticked all the boxes, then you can apply for a consultant job. Oh, that quickly? Yeah. So in radiology, it's a, it's a run-through training program. And if you kind of did a speed run to a consultant, you could do graduate medical school, do your F1 and F2 years. And then if you get into radiology straight away, do five years of that. And then if you apply to consultant jobs straight away, you could technically be a consultant after you know seven years after graduating medical school. It's quite wow. rare because often people will take extra years out to gain a bit more experience and... Sometimes they'll do like an extra fellowship year. It's it's quite rare that people will just gun through the whole way as fast as they possibly mm. can. Because if yeah, you that sounds really intense as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and if you're going to be a consultant, you need to know so much, and there's so much responsibility. There is absolutely no problem in having a few extra years to gain a bit more experience. Mm. So. The extra year to do interventional radiology, mm. you mentioned. What is interventional radiology? Yeah, so clinical radiology is most, for the most part, um, interpreting medical imaging. So ultrasounds, x-rays, CTs, and MRI scans. Um, you will write your report, you'll say what you see within the scan, and you'll kind of give you'll say, okay, I think this is the diagnosis or it could be this and this. And you'll 
you know, comment on the state of the patient as you see it. In interventional radiology, you're using medical imaging to help you do a procedure. So for example, if on a chest X-ray or on a chest CT, you spot that a patient's got a nodule in their lungs that looks like it could be cancer, you can use a CT machine to help guide a needle to exactly where that lung nodule is. Because obviously you can't see the lung nodule on the surface and you can't feel it on the surface. So how do you know where your needle is in relation to the nodule? Well, you use imaging whilst you're taking the biopsy. So if you're doing it under CT guidance, you can prove, you can take images to say, look, here's my needle and it's exactly in the lesion. And therefore I know that what I'm sampling is exactly what I want to sample. Um, and as well as doing biopsies, you can put drains in, uh, into areas of the body that you wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. If you're going really quite advanced, you can thread wires and catheters um, into people's blood vessels. And so in some of the extreme stuff, for example, you can close off a bleeding aneurysm by threading wires through someone's vessels in their groin, thread those vessels all the way up the body into the head, into the brain, and using imaging and contrast injections, you can see where your wires are. And you have to have a very good knowledge of anatomy. So you need to know the roadmap of all these vessels inside your head. And you can get your wire and your catheter to exactly the very, very precise location that you need it to be. And then you can coil and close that aneurysm. So you don't need to take a knife and open the patient up like old school surgery would. You can just do it with some clever wire manipulation. You can get into very small, precise spots. And so the outcomes, um, because it's less invasive, can be better than surgery. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Some of the stuff they can do that, is, that is, is mental. That is magic. That that is actually magic. I mean, it's it's not it's science, but it is it is magic. And it's one of the reasons why radiology is always kind of at the forefront of medical sciences, because obviously, uh, like MRI machines are quite a relatively recent invention in medicine and deals with some really high tech stuff. And using this this high tech equipment, you can you know really achieve some some quite you know stunning feats. And so radiology is always kind of pushing the boundaries of what you can do in terms of diagnosis, but also what you can do in terms of treatment as well. Speaking of the medical procedures with radiology, you did um, in the break, you mentioned that you had spent, was it a year or two in, um, in theatre? Yeah. So between the degree I did in Bristol, the undergrad, which was anatomical sciences and medical school. I worked as a healthcare assistant in North Bristol Hospital. What's it called? Southmead. Southmead Hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I worked I worked for a year in Southmead Hospital as a healthcare assistant in orthopedic theatres. Healthcare assistants generally are on the low skill, low pay spectrum of NHS jobs. And so part of my role was kind of to, to clean the operating theatre between operations and kind of get kit for the surgeons and for the scrub nurses and sort of be a bit of a runner and, and kind of do sort of odd jobs. So you're working with 
surgeons, with scrub nurses, with the uh, anesthetics team, and you've got a high turnover of patients. And it's quite a it's quite an exciting, fast paced job, really, because you're uh, you're still a small cog in a big machine, but the machine basically is operating on patients in quite a invasive way and can do quite miraculous things. And the, the machine that you're part of just feels like you're doing very tangible good for the patient. Yeah, because you're yeah. so close to it. Yeah. You're yeah. close to mm. the action. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you are very close to the action. And sometimes it can be quite funny seeing that interaction of patient and surgeons when the job is being done. So obviously when the surgeon goes to see the, the patient, you know, beforehand when the patient's, you know, awakened on the theater, it's uh, quite a nice uh, fluffy environment and you're explaining what's going to happen. And then when the patient's in the theater, it's kind of all business then. And the surgeon's kind of in a sort of different mindset. And a lot of what the surgeon's having to deal with is quite sort of high risk stuff. You know, when you're kind of, cutting through patients tissues and you know you want to avoid that big artery and you know you can well you can kill patients if you fuck it up in quite a serious way so the surgeons tend to be quite big characters and when i started there i kind of wanted to make quite a good impression and kind of introduce myself to everyone and then it was probably my first actual paid job because everything before that was just you know volunteering and working on the farm stuff um, so yeah, I was quite kind of bright eyed, bushy tailed, wanting to make a good impression. I went up to the surgeons and I said, hello, I'm George. I'm one of the new healthcare assistants here. And he kind of took my hat, like gave me a very firm handshake as kind of old world surgeons do. And he, as he shook my hand, he kind of pulled me in quite close and he said, bloody well, have a shave the next time you show your face here again. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. God, <laughs> bloody hell. I'm in here with the big boys now. Um, so I was like, this is terrifying. And then when he was operating later on, he'd go, you know, the patient's on the table, you know, all the instruments are basically inside the patient. Uh, and he's going, George, get over here. And I'm like, yes, Mr. So-and-so. And he's like, go get me the long weights. So I run off and I was like, yes, Mr. So-and-so, I'll, I'll go and get them. Because that's part of your job is to get any equipment that they no. need you to get. I know, so naive. And then so I ran off to the saw cupboard and I still didn't like know there's so much equipment and all the equipment has really bizarre, funny names. You've got like the Charlie bow. There's a piece of equipment called the Blade Runner. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I asked one of the guys in the saw cupboard, I was like, where's the long weights? And the guy in the saw cupboard just kind of like gave me a smile and I was like, Oh God, I've been had here. So I went back into the theatres and I was like, well done, Mrs. So-and-so, you've got me. And then he was all smiles from there and he was all like jokey, jokey. And I was like, oh, this guy just plays practical jokes. That's just part of their kind of personality. And so many of the surgeons are kind of odd personalities or, or kind of wacky or and scary. So yeah, you do get a lot of odd people working in that environment. And also sometimes though. they can get yeah to do that i mean i've heard i've heard that happen when you first start out as like an apprentice on a building site 
and someone says, can you go get me the spirit level bubbles and some tartan paint, you know, and a skirting board ladder and, and stuff like that. And we're not in surgery when you've got someone opened up in front of you. <laughs> oh, yeah. But the kind of because it's so kind of serious and sometimes life and death, you have to kind of make it a bit jokey and a bit, a bit more lighthearted and inject some humor into the situations because sometimes you know when the surgeons get really stressed out there's one surgeon who would throw metal heavy metal equipment across the room because he was so enraged or frustrated because it was so high stakes and sometimes they would shout at some of the members of staff something awful but you just it can be a it can be a really fun friendly work environment sometimes it can be awful but I guess in that sort of situation, if you're the one being shouted at, you've got to take it, haven't you? Because it's like, well, we've we've literally got someone's life on our hands right now. Yeah, and if it's going to yeah. make you perform your job better, then I'll just, I'll, yeah. I'll take the dressing down. Do you know what I mean? It's Yeah. I mean, it's an old fashioned way of thinking because now, you know, in the NHS, people say there's no excuse for talking to people like that. You can't treat stuff like that, which, yeah, you, you shouldn't be treating stuff like that at all. But we're all kind of, you know, under the the collective agreement that these surgeons are under a lot of stress. And it's not surprising if it's going to come out badly sometimes, you know, where they're going to lash mm. out. And again, it's not acceptable for them to act like that. But, you know, sometimes you kind of just... I guess if you're in like the army or something or somewhere else where the stakes are really high, there comes a point when you can't really... It can't be in a, in reality be all lovey dovey, you know. It's easy to be all lovey dovey in like an office where nothing really matters <laughs> apart from like whether the shareholders get an extra five yeah. percent on their dividends. But you know, if it's like someone's going to literally die, or you know, your country's going to be invaded and taken yeah. over, or something like that, you can't yeah. really the niceties have to yeah. have to be dispensed with, unfortunately. Yeah. And the surgeon's way of thinking, but really all of our jobs is to facilitate the surgeon doing their job because the scrub nurse, you know, has all the equipment provided for the surgeon. The anesthetist anesthetizes the patient for the surgeon. I'm doing my job directly to, you know, help the surgeon as well. Mm. All, all Everything we're doing is to facilitate them to do the job. Although technically, if you're going to list mm. the importance of people in that theater, the most important person is the patient. The second most important person actually is the anaesthetist because they are actually directly responsible for whether the patient lives or dies. It's their responsibility to keep the patient alive because if, for example, the surgeon makes a mistake and they're hosing a lot of blood, it's the anaesthetist's job to make sure the blood pressure is fine the, and the anaesthetist's job to make sure they've got the blood transfusions and to make sure oh, the, really? uh, okay. you know, they're breathing adequately under anaesthesia. Yeah. It's the anaesthetist's job to keep the patient alive and manage all of these complications. Oh. I always imagine that the anaesthetist puts them to sleep and then just sits there well, for a few hours until, <laughs> that, I mean, <laughs> until it's time I mean, to wake them up. Just go, right, yeah. well, that's me done. I'm going to go for a fag. Yeah. We did, we, I mean, a lot of the anaesthetists <laughs> would, um, as soon as they put the patient to sleep, put their feet up on the anaesthetic machine and start reading the, the times or the guard or the um the telegraph and you know be munching on the sandwiches in theater even though strictly no food is supposed to be allowed uh, yeah so <laughs> when everything is going plain sailing 
it's probably relatively, you know, an easy job. But when it hits the fan, that's when the anaesthetist really has to earn their money. Like I said, if the patient dies, it's it's often the anaesthetist kind of responsibility. How, how often did that happen when you were in the theatre that the patient died during the surgery? Don't think anyone did actually, because because I was in orthopedic theatres, a lot of the operations were hip replacements and knee replacements. Just sorry, just so people, in case people don't yeah. know what what is orthopedic. Oh, sorry, orthopedics basically means bones and joints. Yeah. Okay. If you're going to go into like the the Latin or the Greek of it, ortho means to straighten, and peds comes from pediatrics children. So the original orthopedic surgeons would their job was to straighten children. So children with rickets that had bowed legs oh, wow. it was their job to straighten the bones of children with rickets. Um, but basically, orthopedics means um, bones and joints. So an orthodontist is someone who straightens. Yeah. Teeth? Yeah. <laughs> that fits. The end. <laughs> no argument there. And an and an author is someone who straightens letters <laughs> on a page. No, author. O R T H O. Well, I think that it's time to move on to deciding, George. If you were not in the noble profession of doctorhood, what would your dream job mm. be? Any initial thoughts? Yeah, so, well, this is quite a quite something different from the rest of what we've been talking about. I love when you're playing video games and you get to create things. Where like The Sims? Yeah. I kind of love cit- city building games and also games where... I've done could, them. Yeah. City Skylines. Oh, I'm oh, playing City Skylines too game. at the moment. And yeah. And loving it. What a game. Um, yeah. And I also love games... And then you destroy the city with tornadoes. <laughs> well, that's what yeah. I did. I also love <laughs> games where you can sort of create the environments and the landscapes and the kind of buildings. Uh, this one game, it's a, it's, a, it's a Viking survival game called Valheim. And it's very basic elements that you can build with, but you can make some amazing things. And I guess what job I would want to do is be able to be in some kind of simulation where I can just create everything, landscapes, cities, creatures, but I'm not techie. So I couldn't use kind of today's technology to sort of write code for that. I'd kind of want to be in that environment and kind of shape it as I'm walking around it. I kind of love that. You want to actually do it in real life. That's what you're saying. That would be your dream yeah, job. Yeah. Like, like you're I, able I to imagine, build a city from scratch and then get people to move. Yeah. To like I imagine in a couple of years time, we'll be able to enter some kind of simulation and we'll be able to sort of, you know, change it with our minds. And, you know, maybe the job is creating that for games or maybe it's just purely, you know, what I'd want to do. Maybe you could almost make it like a VR thing where you can put on a headset and then you enter that world of that blank Mm. canvas and it could almost be something like a mayor of like a new city or like a council come to you and they say we want to build this new city and we need your help to do it enter this like vr space and help us build it and craft it as in you design it that way and then it gets built in the exact way that you designed in the vr i just love 
the idea of being able to walk around or walk through something that you've kind of created and designed. And that doesn't even have to be like a building. It could be like a beautiful landscape that you've kind of crafted. You could be a landscape garden. Yeah, but I I want to like go beyond the realms of what's like physically possible. There's going to be (laughs) some mountains in the background here and like right. Okay, well, I mean, I guess since this is your dream job, it could be that you can, you know, you we say, okay, here's um, 15 square miles in the English countryside with nothing mm. on it. You can be like God, you know, put a... Yeah, that's what I want to be. You know, I want to be build God. Build buildings and build... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll take that job. It's not really a I'll job, take... is it? <clears throat> well, it's a... It's a it's a kind of demigod, I guess. It's a god with 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 a remit over a small bit of land, and you can you can do whatever you yeah. want. I'll be the I'll be you the god of like you want Sussex, or yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bow before me. That is your Sussex. nickname, isn't it? I am your god. Yeah. <laughs> Would you not want Cheshire though? A little bit of undisturbed land in Cheshire where you could make a a city or a town. Well, Cheshire's and... quite flat, really. I'd want to kind of. Well, yeah, but you, you, yeah, can, you can you can change it up. Because yeah. there are those in some of those city building games, you can like click on a bit of ground and it lowers or rises, can't it? Like you can make oh, valleys and mountains. Jacob, and you're hardly whatnot. scratching the surface there of of what, <laughs> of what I would do as the god of Sussex. <laughs> okay, well let's let's imagine then that we've got. Um, okay, we're, we're in Sussex. We've got. I don't the know why I picked Sussex. Fifteen. Oh no, but let's roll yeah. with it. We've got the fifteen square miles or however much mm. you want. But you know, enough plate to build a city mm. or a conurbation of some kind. Explain to us, design design for us, what is um Georgetown? It would have to be a kind of classic high fantasy, rustic, medieval looking, but a bit sort of magical twist. Basically, a quest giver hub if you're in a kind of computer game. Somewhere that's going to have like you <laughs> yeah. know, the blacksmith who needs you to collect like 15 iron or whatever. And it's got to have the classic <laughs> high fantasy in with some colorful characters in there. It's going to have temples, stables, a lively marketplace, you know, filled with jolly characters colorful scenes and scenarios cobbled streets yeah so you're more into the you're more interested in the in the details rather than in the overall like um the town planning kind of aspect oh i'd also be into uh, the town planning as well yeah so i'd make sure you know all the sewers are running as as they should be underground yeah (laughs) yeah where you might have one patch where the sewers are you know, not running quite as well to to make sure that that shady part of town feels shady, you know, where the kind of thieves and assassins kind of hang out. You might have a lagoon even. Yes, exactly. Yeah, less less tropical lagoon. Is this a town that you would live in or you would just design it and say, my work here is done and you would retire? And then destroy it with tornadoes. (laughs) Yeah, I think I probably would like to live in it. I'd probably give myself quite, you know, a nice, cosy, cushy place to live in it. I wouldn't want to be like mayor of the town. I wouldn't want to be famous in the town, but I would want to, yeah, I want to live and walk around. I want to like walk around it and Mm. kind of really soak up the feel and live in it. And also so that if I'm living in it, I can kind of chop and change it how I, how I want. 
Do the people of the town know that no. you built it? No, they don't know that I am their god. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, like I wouldn't want to be. Like, I wouldn't want to be. You can walk amongst yeah. them. You can walk amongst them as common yes. folk, and they yeah. never know. Yeah. And are you still a doctor in this I, scenario? Yeah, I could. Uh, I'm not sure that radiology lends itself quite well to the kind of high fantasy medieval setting, but. Um, yeah, because I guess I'm thinking this is a dream job. So the job isn't that you create. It's a one-off. You just create this place and you yeah. live in it and you stop working then or is that your is is that your dream job is that you then retire and that you just then wander around this place that you created well i guess the the job is that you are because it's going to take a long time to create this right so you're always going to be adding bits and improving on it and kind of steadily building it because with these things you're never kind of like okay done and, and and that's it so i i yeah i'd always want to be playing like an active part in it in this world and obviously you're gonna you're gonna have the people who live in the town saying we need a hospital yeah. in the town and there isn't a hospital and you, and you and say you... oh no but you're not allowed to have medicine because that's too modern i say <laughs> not get... yet <laughs> wait be patient <laughs> um, or you know that uh, a house might burn down and you and they say, "Oh, we haven't, we haven't got a fire brigade. We we need." Well, I think they've invented water, Jordan, <laughs> by this point in history. Yeah, but there's always expansion. There's always yeah. the, the place is always growing, and obviously you've got more people moving in. So I'm I'm really thinking about city skylines here, where oh, you yeah. have more people moving in, and then you need to build more houses and zone more places, and it could be sort of ever yeah. Expanding. And I don't mind, obviously, because in this in this sort of world, I have to kind of masquerade as someone who is, you know, part of the community. So I wouldn't mind doing a bit of like low key medicine on the side, you know, healthy <laughs> low key medicine, yeah, illusionary Viking trickster god, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, maybe I'd help like oh, set can... some bones, fractured bones, or like. You know, yeah, the kids with rickets, exactly. them out. Yeah, those bendy kids. Um, well, if it's within high fantasy, you could, um, you could be like one of those doctors who just gives leeches to you know, people. they in, in medicine, they they uh, sometimes they still use maggots. Oh, so why? So, if you've got a really <laughs> nasty wound, the maggots will only eat the dead tissue. They won't eat living tissue. So sometimes they, you know, will put maggots on though uh, right. as a way to clean the wounds. But obviously you don't have just like maggots yeah. like crawling all over the place. They kind of sort of kept under like a lid on the wounds. But it's just so, <laughs> so crazy to me. They still use that. So you bite it. So you just cover the wounded maggots and, just, and bind them up and then wait until they've eaten all the yeah. dead flesh. You've got a, you've got a supply of maggots, then, George, in this oh, in your yeah. house in this town. I think I would. I think I would kind of have to employ if I'm going to work as a low key doctor in this place. You'd have to kind of you'd have to crack out the leeches and maggots a little bit, you know, just to be in character. A few kind of dodgy herbal remedies. And what what if the locals started calling you Doctor Maggots? I think I'd be all right with that. Actually, that's quite a cool name. Would you send? You wouldn't send in a tornado. <laughs> Doctor George Maggots. <laughs> Doctor Maggots. I think if people call me Doctor Maggots, that would give me an excuse to like hunch over and and like put on a voice. I just have to become Doctor Maggots. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then you're back doing some of your characters. You know, you can make, you can fit in some character work. If when Dr. Maggots (laughs) dies, I'll have to assume the role of like some other weird and wonderful character. Yeah. (laughs) So I want to know more about the the town or the city because I know there's a market and a pub and your house and things (laughs) like that. But like, and it's quite old fashioned. Mm. So there's no electricity or is there, are there cars? Are there roads or is it horse and castle? What kind of place in it? And then how big is it? How many people live there? What's, you know, what's the ideal? Because you want to have enough, you want to have enough stuff. Because if this is your job, if this is what you want as your dream job, that you're living there for your working life at least and doing little changes and improvements and additions, it's going to need to be meaty enough. Well, it's probably going to kind of start off small and get bigger and bigger. I think that's going to be one of the most satisfying things in it is watching it grow. But yeah, no, no electricity. Maybe the Wizard's Tower has some kind of like slightly steampunk looking magical items in there that might resemble a bit of, you know, electricity and technology. But, you know, that's the, the Wizard's, Wizard's Tower, Tower sorry. Yeah, where the Wizard lives. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. Jacob. Oh, I, was, okay. I, was, I was wondering whether there were going to be some steampunk elements. Purely as a kind of magical curiosities. Yeah. You don't want to be. Well, the maybe wizard. when when you know Doctor Maggots dies, maybe I'll assume the role of the wizard. <laughs> but you are Doctor. Oh Maggot. yeah, but That's yeah, but you, you know, it? like in this situation, I'm kind of immortal, and <laughs> and you know, I'm overseeing the whole whole lives, and so Doctor Maggots can't be seen to be around forever, you know. He'd arise too much suspicion. So you're there throughout time as different characters, um, a bit like Doctor Who. You know, you're always, you know, well, not like Doctor Who actually, because you always look the same. But you're, but you're there. You're always there, but in different costumes. I'm imagining with a slightly different voice and posture. Most of them hunched over. And I guess then, if you're, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) that's the. And then if you're. If you're immortal, presumably you live to see this city become a modern city with electricity and Ooh, whatnot. Potentially. But the thing is about fantasy is, is that in in most kind it's, of fantasy situations, these these kind of the way of living goes on for thousands and thousands of years. Like Yeah. It's fantasy yeah. land, isn't it? So it's like if you if like Middle Earth in a five hundred years time isn't like Los Angeles. Exactly, yeah. Still, I mean, that's the classic you know. example. In Tolkien's world, you know, if you're looking at what happens in the event of the Lord of the Rings, it's like 10,000 years after, you know, civilizations first started and they still not even got, you know, crossbows. Or no, actually they did have crossbows yeah, in, he, uh, in the second he, film. So he overlooked they that only one, just he? got... The idiot. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Tolkien, yeah. Uh, idiot. Yeah. Uh, I think if I was there, I would have made a car by now, mate. So. Uh, yeah, I guess in in actually that is one of the points of the of one of the plots in the films is that the industrial revolution does actually start in that in that part of it. But yeah, going back over the history of Middle Earth, it's been thousands and thousands of years, and they've just still got the same technology. So maybe it's kind of frozen technologically in time, but the city still develops. But do you, in your house, have like a TV and things? I presume you'd miss some of those things if you go from your yeah. life now in 21st century Britain. Everyone else is doing whatever they did back then for entertainment, you know, um, 
I, I li- honestly, what I just imagined was that thing you see in films where someone's got like a, a hula hoop they're pushing oh, along they're with pushing a string. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that is. I've never understood that. How does that work physically? Oh, I, just, if I had a you hula just push hoop, the hoop along well, yeah, with a stick. How, thing, yeah. well, the hoop would fall over, wouldn't it? Like straight away. If I'm I sorry, it, but. What on earth are you talking about? Do you not know about? what we're talking about? No. <laughs> what's, what's the hula hoop got Have to do with any of this? It was, like a, it was like a Victorian London sort of thing, wasn't it? Where people, like, it was like little kids. It'd basically be a hula hoop and you'd push it along with a stick. Oh, and yes. the was that it would just keep rolling. Yeah. 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 Did, you, did, you, did you think we meant the I just crisp? Had, I just had no idea where hula hoops came from <laughs> in, this, in this conversation. Um... <laughs> Well, I've just Googled uh, stick pushed along with... Uh, <laughs> no, it's because I've Googled stick pushed along with a stick, not wheel <laughs> pushed along with a stick. Does it have a name? Okay. Uh, hoop rolling, mm. also called hoop trundling, is both a sport trundling. and a child's game, in which a large large hoop is rolled along the ground, <laughs> generally by means of an object wielded by the player. The aim of the game is to keep the hoop upright for long periods of time or to do various mm. tricks. Fascinating. So anyway, my point was that um, the people of your yeah. town are all busying themselves with medieval pursuits of some kind, but do you have, like, a PS5? Mm. Uh, that, and when people come around to your house, maybe you've got, like, a secret room in your house, like you pull a book out of a bookshelf <laughs> and it, a secret hatch opens, and then you've basically got, like, a modern bit of a house in there so you don't lose the creature comforts of the 21st yeah i mean it would be it would be nice to be able to step out of this world and have you know a bit of a you know holiday of the modern world and and the creature comforts like you said so maybe this is just a nine to five job and you know outside of that environment Ah, yeah kind of you know yeah in the world i'm very on board with that that. would be ideal really because it's a job job. yeah you know job isn't your whole life exactly so if you're if you're in this world and someone's like, oh, do you want to do something this evening? And you're like, oh, I'm sorry, mm. I can't because I'm... And then you can't say, obviously, it's because I'm going <laughs> to teleport back to the yeah. real world or yeah. something. But... Sorry, I'm going ju- to jump on Fortnite with the boys. <laughs> yes. so I, can't, I can't come yeah. to the inn tonight. I'm going back to the world I live in that's going to be completely unimaginable to you in every conceivable way. <laughs> Blow your noodle. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just gonna. I was just gonna scroll on TikTok, so I, I can't really do anything. Yeah, no, that's. I quite like that because that is, you know, that makes it more of a job, really, yeah. isn't it? It's not like, um, you know, you're not in residence necessarily, but you have a base of operations within. I mean, you can still have like a little TV or something in there, can't you? Just yeah. for doing at lunchtime if you want to kick yeah. back and, and watch. Watch, watch a bit of work swimming. and lunch, yeah. or <laughs> swimming, or watch House, as I'm sure you. Oh love. my! As I'm sure God. doctors love. I watch House, <laughs> and they come up with the most ridiculous <laughs> plot lines. Oh, the most frustrating thing um, I've seen on House is when they're like they go through the the whole story of like, oh, what's going on with this patient? We just don't know what's going on. There's all these twists and turns at the end the patients got all these weird bizarre symptoms because they've got high calcium and you're like that's one of the first tests you do when the patient comes through <laughs> the door is to like look at their calcium oh god sorry i could go on a rant about about those 
TV shows. I mean, I think that any any member of a profession who watches a popular show about oh, their yeah. profession hates it because of how yeah. wrong it is. L- Friend of the pod, Lucy, would try and get me to watch these medical shows or documentaries, and no, it's too much. Too busman's holiday. Do you feel like with what we've discussed so far, is there anything missing from this job that you'd want to include? Do you want to get Ooh. paid? Yes. Yes. Something who has actually never come up on the I'd podcast like before salary. is. So it's not that it, this is enough of a reward in itself that you get to do this. You want to, you need yeah, to be paid I, as well. Well, I guess you need yeah, to live back exactly. in the real world, don't you? Yeah. If, if you, I've yeah. got my evenings and weekends, you know, back here in my yeah. real home. So you want to get like a, a decent salary, maybe like performance-based bonuses based on how many new additions you make to yeah, the good. city and how like, ah, oh, because it could be, because don't in these games, sometimes you have metrics, like how, I don't, mm. I can't, they half remembering, but you have like how happy the people mm-hmm. are and, you know, various other things. So that could tie in. I and guess, if you're making to... a business out of it, I guess you could... You could make it a tourist industry. So, you know, getting people from, you know, our world, letting them visit this world as well and have a stroll through and maybe go on a few, you know, fun quests or mm. whatever. And, um, so maybe that's the business right. model is, is is selling the the ability to enter that world. Yeah. Because, I mean, it didn't even occur to me that you would at the very least, I guess, want to be able to bring friends and family and show them what yeah, you've done. Paying. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How much would you charge? There's no free trips. How much would I charge? <laughs> um I think I'd charge thirty pounds an hour. <laughs> I, I love think that. <laughs> that is a really funny amount of money for something that you could obviously charge way more than that before. I think that is more than reasonable, George. For what you're yeah, offering. but like you can teleport to a high fantasy world and spend the day there for thirty quid an hour. But like, if you're going for a whole day, if if you're doing like like just ten hours, three hundred quid for one day. Yeah, but you could charge three thousand pounds an hour, and then you could get you could get three hundred thousand. Yeah, there's like package holidays that cost more than that to like Magaluf. I get. I mean, maybe George, it's just your your caring side coming out that you're thinking about the people who might be less able. I mean, I want to make this accessible. You know, right? And you know, maybe I'll have like student discounts or like. Blue light. Yeah. Okay. yeah. 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 What's it called? Um... <laughs> like uni days, like 10% yeah. off for students. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I guess you could have a little like a uh, cardboard <laughs> thing you give people and they can get a little stamp. Yes. But if yes. they get six stamps, they Tenth get one trip free. free. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I definitely, I definitely sell it to schools is like you know i think it'd be great if you had like a like a class of children who were able long to go along and see it because like kids have yeah. been taken to like like uh open air museums and stuff and you could do like a pie piper kind of thing couldn't you you could have you could kind of like lead the children through with a, like a little man playing the flute and he'd guide them <laughs> through the the towns yeah 
kids so so is this actually how you get money you don't have a salary but you get the money through charging people to come in or do you have both why not both yeah you can have both yeah i mean i'm not gonna yeah the only, any problem well there are many <laughs> problems i guess but a, a big quite a big problem i can see is if this town is populated with medieval people who have no idea that the modern real world exists mm. will they not be a little bit freaked out by the fact that lots of people from the real world in modern clothing are going to be coming and walking around like, like on tours and things and you also have to dress up yeah it would okay, be quite right. it would be quite and, and they're not allowed to talk they're to not the locals. allowed to break character like like they're visiting north korea basically when you're not allowed <laughs> to talk to any of the locals and you can only go into certain yeah areas. They'd, it would have to be a strict um set of rules that you'd have to follow you'd have to dress yeah. up limited interaction with the locals you know if not it's got to be in oldie worldie i fantasy and you know, one slip, I love one this. like mention of a mobile phone, and like you, <laughs> you're out, you're banned, you're blocked. Mm. Well, I've got to say, I absolutely love this. Well, I will charge <laughs> you. I I'll charge this. you a discounted twenty five pounds an hour. Oh, oh that's yeah. really nice. How do <laughs> I just another detail that I'm interested in is how does the process of getting from the real world to this world work? So do you have an office in the real world that people show up to and then you kind of pull back a blind and there's a big swirling portal or something <laughs> and you say in through this way, yeah. please, into the and then they come out in your house in, in to your avoid world? suspicion, they'd have to come out of like they'd have to emerge into this world from outside of the town and then walk into the town. Right. Um, okay. So that there'd be some kind of like port, like under a bush or whatever, and they'd you know, have to walk into town. And they'd, they'd sort of have to say they're from, from, from somewhere out of town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would start to get suspicious, wouldn't it? After a while, when there's so many people who come in, yeah. everyone asks, you, "Where are you from?" You go, "Oh, just out of town," you know. <laughs> and you've got like fifty people saying that every day coming into the yes. town. Eventually, we're going to wonder who are all these people. But I mean, it would be—it's a. I you really have to earn your money because there would be a lot of careful engineering of things from behind the scenes you'd have to do mm-hmm. um, to maintain the social order and avoid confusion and suspicion among the population while they don't know that you're the person that's in (laughs) charge of this i'd probably have Um, to be quite ruthless in terms of crushing any um like conspiracy Uh, (laughs) like if if any of the like local townspeople are like thinking i think there's a conspiracy here that a whole world is made up and it's just a tourist attraction i'd have to stamp that out yeah okay how would you do that keep it light i throw them in the lagoon (laughs) (laughs) to the lagoon with you there we go tying it back tying it back which heretic He speaks of conspiracy <laughs> to the lagoon. <laughs> well, um, unless there's anything else you want to add to this, George. I mean, we've got it's we've got everything. We've got the <laughs> we've got the job. We've got the working hours. We've got the means of making money. Um, and you have, I think, you know, included anything that you might want to do. You've got the you know the childhood interest in creating 
playing the sims and everything and you can kind of do anything really within that world can't you you can do the medicine yeah. you can do yeah. it's got it all so i think that we can we can shake your hand on this thank you job. very much thank you very much for my dream job <laughs> you're welcome and thanks a lot for the five pound an hour discount to come <laughs> yeah. into well, i can george I can world late straight second year deal yeah. <laughs> thanks yeah yeah we'll talk about that oh yes podcast so that the listeners <laughs> don't get jealous yeah wink, and for, for yeah. the listeners you can use discount code <laughs> x7z yeah. this episode is sponsored by george world <laughs> enterprises inc um well thank you so much for being on the pod george this has been a really really interesting winding conversation and i really hope that anyone who listens to it maybe if they had any interest in medicine before it's um really piqued their interest into getting into it but also given them a, a bit of a peek behind the curtain of what yeah to well, i hope i haven't put everyone off, anyone off if you are interested in getting into it you have to have a um you have to do plenty of soul searching and you have to you know be very aware of the practicalities of the job so if you are interested, do get some experience um, in hospitals. Try and do some of that volunteering work because the idea of uh, of medicine working in healthcare can be romanticised and you just have to know that, you know, if you want to do it, it's something that you really want to do because it would be very rewarding, but it's not for the faint-hearted. But thank you very much for having me on the, the pod. I've absolutely loved speaking to the two of you again. Passing good old chortles along the way <laughs> yeah well we've loved having you here thank you thank very you. much i really want to go to that town jordan yes the whimsy timsy town of a fiddle dee dee and dragons and dark alleyways with big Buckets in the night. That does actually sound a little bit like George. Were you trying to do an impression of George then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just me. Sorry, George, if you were listening and that offends you. I thought that sounded a bit like you. Um, that was, I I think a few of the one episodes we've recorded recently, including some that haven't come out yet, there is nothing or basically nothing in anything leading up to the dream job section that could lead you to predict what the dream job will be. And I love how we got to the dream job section and it's straight into uh, being a demigod over a little city, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but only during working hours. I love that. That's one of my fa- I guess probably say this every episode. That's one of my favorite dream jobs that we've had. Um, what an imagination that man has. He didn't even stop to think that maybe his dream job would be a real job. It'd be like, no, straight into his fantasy world that he indulges in when he plays those city games. Lovely. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And um, I guess if I were to dream up sort of like a high fantasy world, It'd be one where everyone who listens to this pod gives it a five-star rating on any podcast platform that they listen to. And I, I know that sounds crazy. God, check out J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien over here. <laughs> it's Jordan. Jordan Tolkien. <laughs> Jordan Tolkien. <laughs> yes. Um, 
yeah, no, I definitely think that it would be a good idea to uh, go and follow our accounts because that will make it easier for you to mm. see the episodes when they come out because that's where we post them. And also, if you've got anyone who you think would be good on the pod, drop us a message on any of the socials um, and we can get in contact with you. We can we can link up, we can sort something out. So it's almost the end of Careers Mayor for 2023. We've got one more episode and that is the Christmas special, episode nine. Ooh. And we will not be releasing it on our usual bi-weekly cycle because if we did, it would go out on Christmas Day and we don't think that anyone would listen to it if we did that. <laughs> so we're going to release it on Friday, the 22nd of December. So keep an eye out for that. It's a really, really special one. And we are both extremely excited for you all to hear it. And the person who we will have as a guest is amazing. So yeah, tune into that. Oh, I cannot wait for that one. Really, yeah. honestly, everyone, you need to listen to that one. It's, it's really going to be a special one. Really, really special. Yeah. And then don't worry, we're not going anywhere because we'll be back uh, straight after Christmas. Well, not straight after Christmas. We'll be back in the new year with episode 10 coming out on the 8th of January. So then we're back to our fortnightly cycle. We never stop. We're we in never your stop. Ears. We never sleep. We're in your ears. We're in your mind. We're in your job. I'm in your job. I'm in your office. <laughs> I'm watching you. I'm thinking, will they be good for the pod? I'm taking notes. <laughs> 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 yeah jordan does think all those things and more and if you want to hear more of his thoughts keep listening to the charisma podcast and also one last thing uh since we're going into the christmas break and people will be you know ho hopefully you'll be working less and having a bit of time off please do uh go back and catch up on our back catalogue uh we have we've gone through eight episodes now uh we've had some fantastic guests on and they're all up on spotify apple podcasts amazon music etc etc so go back and listen to them uh they are all fantastic now Get out of here, you lot. Clear off. Come back on the 22nd. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.